Extraordinary Districts in Extraordinary Times. Hi, this is Karen Chenoweth from the Education Trust. We began this podcast series to talk with educators we know are thoughtful and effective to hear how they are coping with the unprecedented closure of their school buildings. Today, we're talking with Jenny Black, principal of Washington Elementary in Junction City, Kansas, part of Geary County USD 475 School District. I first met Ms. Black back in 2007 when she was assistant principal of Ware Elementary. Ware is in the same district, but it's on the grounds of Fort Riley and serves the children of infantry soldiers. Deb Gustafson, who was then principal, and Ms. Black led an amazing transformation. Ware was one of the first schools in Kansas to be identified as needing improvement back in 2001. The superintendent sent Dr. Gustafson in to clean it up and that is literally what she had to do. When she first walked into the building in July, she was hit with the stench of uncleaned bathrooms and a filthy building. She spent the summer trying to hire a maintenance manager and she enlisted the help of her daughter to clean the building. One of her first hires was Jenny Black, the wife of an army officer who had worked in the district as a special education teacher before being sent to Georgia. When Ms. Black's husband was reposted back to Fort Riley, Gustafson hired her to head special education for Ware. A couple of years later, Ms. Black became assistant principal, and the two became as tight an administrative team as I have ever seen. They practically finished each other's sentences. Within a few years, Ware became one of the top performing schools in Kansas under very difficult circumstances. One of those circumstances was that when 9-11 happened, Fort Riley began immediately preparing for war. Parents at the school ended up being deployed as many as eight or nine times to Iraq and Afghanistan over the years. That meant many students were living with relatives or even neighbors and were dealing with tremendous trauma. I wrote about Ware's story in my book, How It's Being Done, published by Harvard Education Press in 2009. Four years ago, Jenny Black became principal of Washington Elementary in Junction City. Washington Elementary is a diverse school. About 20% of its students are African-American, 30% white, 30% Hispanic, and 18% are students classified by the state as other. 98% are considered economically disadvantaged. Over the years, Ms. Black and I have attended conferences together and shared meals and laughter. The last time I saw Ms. Black was at the National ESSA Conference, formerly called the National Title I Conference in Atlanta. I try to keep these interviews pretty formal, but we've known each other too long, and I don't think I can call you anything but Jenny. I hope that's all right with you. Absolutely. Uh, so, So, Jenny, first of all, I hope you and your family are safe and healthy. We are. We're very, very, everything's gone great for us. That's great. And congratulations. You're a new grandma. That's, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so not only did Kansas close its schools early, the governor of Kansas announced early on that the school buildings would be closed for the rest of the year. And you mentioned in your email that you were really grateful for the certainty that that provided. Can you talk about why, why you... You you actually used the term grateful, or I think you said you were proud of your governor uh, for making that decision. 
I'm extremely proud of our government, by, a governor. By making that decision early on, we could start making plans on how we were going to manage this and not have to have the question in our head, when are we going back? When are we going back? And, and you know, it provides security when you can predict what's going to happen. And when the most unpredictable times that are happening, that actually brings comfort to something that is very uncomfortable. So uh, I am very proud of our governor and she did it with a lot of backlash from our GOP. And, and so, uh, but she stood strong and ultimately all, many of the states have made a similar decision. And so uh, she was ahead of the curve and we were able to make some good decisions based upon that. Yeah, I mean, we were just talking a couple of weeks ago with um, some some folks who are still wondering if they're going back in May. Um, they don't think so, but they're not sure. It And it does provide this extra layer of uncertainty for them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, the same thing now happens next year, right? So as we start, so the PD I provided today for my staff, this is the day that we start saying, what are we doing next year? And instead, we're kind of trying to pretend like, well, we think this is, we're going to go back, maybe. And again, it's really then hard to make those hard plans on what are we going to do when we don't, as things feel very up in the air still. What did that conversation look like? I mean, so that was professional development for your teachers. How did you introduce that conversation? So, you know, what we've kind of done, and with my building leadership team, what we've done is we've talked about an A, a B, and a C plan. So, you know, your plan A is everything's going to be normal, um, that you would have a nurse standing at your head. Normal looks different even, but you have a nurse standing at your front door checking temperature. We're all coming through one door. If the child says they're sick, you know, you end up triaging. You handle a sick child. You have to disinfect certain areas. You know, that hand washing, sanitate, you know, those kind of things that you have to put in just for to manage the disease. Um, so that would be plan A. Plan B would be that we've talked about is, okay, social distancing. What would that have to look like? Would we have to run two sections of school where you're targeting only reading and math because those are your, your high priorities and you do half the class in the morning, half the class in the afternoon, and maybe even a third where you have parents saying, no, I'm staying online. I'm not sending my child. My child is vulnerable and I'm staying online. So I'm not sending my kid. So you end up in basically with these three different communities that you're going to have to work through. And then the last option being that we're still in an e-learning environment, which is what we're kind of doing now. And um, you move forward that way. I actually like plan B better than all the other plans because I don't, I think we're going to run into challenges with plan A <laughs> where we go back to things as normal. I'm not sure how you can appropriately provide safety for everybody in those environments and, and some of the other concerns I have about that. So normal might not be plan A may not be possible until after a vaccine is what you're thinking. You know, um, that is what I am thinking. And, and you know, we haven't gotten any guidance yet, really, from our district or the state. Now, there may be conversations that I'm not privy to, but we haven't had those conversations. But the, the challenge being that plan A, so how do you deal with that? We have diabetics on staff. Are they going to be wearing masks? 
Um, are we going to say, okay, because you're a diabetic and we think you're too vulnerable to be in this environment, we'd like you to stay home? Um, how do you deal with the teacher who gets it, who has two or three children at home who now are also, right? So you may end up with a, an adult who has to be quarantined for 14 days, who then children get it and they are now quarantined for 14 days. So you've now lost a month of that teacher and now are we going to find a sub to come into that environment? I mean, all of those are like, how are you going to manage those details? And, and that's the challenge. And what about the kid who shows up to the office who really doesn't want to be at school today and does, <laughs> I don't feel good. <laughs> so we send them home to get the COVID test, right? And how long is it taking right now for a test to come back? What we're hearing is four days. Four days. And four days later, he comes back to school and he never had it to begin with. But of course, we're just taking precautions. I don't know. Those are the very real, I mean, that is the very real conversation that, that educators all around the country, I imagine, are having. So are you thinking that you're going to do a summer school or, or it'll be an e-learning summer school or you're not going to do a summer school? We are we are not doing summer school. They have they have our district has decided that we are done until next fall. And part of that has to do with all of the other pieces that have to happen. So if we were to do a summer school, you have all of these pieces. So you have to first come in and clean your rooms. You have to clean deep clean all your rooms to make sure they're ready to go. Then we also have situations where we have construction and different activities that we typically get done that have already been set up for this summer. All right, so now you've got other people in your building that you're going to have to clean up after. And so you have all these moving pieces that become just a challenge to keep everybody safe. The other uh, situation that we're dealing with is, for lack of a better our teachers are a little fatigued. The steep learning curve that they went through from going to from physical presence to only online learning was probably as steep as you can get it. Um, they have overnight had to learn Zoom, Skype, Schoology, um, tools that they, how to route a document to get signatures for IEP meetings. How are we going to manage the IEP students? We've had to do more meetings than I've ever had. Like, it's not uncommon for us to be online for five hours a day with IEP meetings, virtual meetings. I mean, it's not uncommon to be online significantly. So we, uh, GoGuardian is another tool that we've used for the first time through this. So they've had this steep amount of learning. They're also creating more uh, content that they're putting out than they have ever created before. And that takes a lot of time. In the presence of all of this, our teachers are no different than any other person going through this. They've got husbands that all of a sudden may not be working. They may be in financial hardship. Some of them have, I have one mom right now who has a one-year-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old at home, and she's teaching at the same time. Um, that management alone is so significant of trying to, that our teachers need to take a respite. And almost take a deep breath so they're ready. If we go online learning next year, we've got to be ready and we've got to have teachers that are prepared for that. And it sounds to me like you really think at least some of what you're going to be doing is going to be online. I do think that. What I mean, in the best scenario, I think, and we're going to find this out. And I'm, again, I'm, a, I'm predicting. I'm uh, visiting with some people who have some um, background with dealing with diseases. You know, 
everyone's kind of loosening the reins right now. And what's going to happen is we're going to wait and see what happens to the curve. Uh, likely the curve will go up and then all likely we'll have to shut it down. I just listened to PBS and they were calling it the, the dance and the hammer, I believe. The dance being, let's see if we can uh, go ahead and do some more social activities and the hammer being when we have to shut it down again because uh, our hospitals can't manage the amount of viruses they're dealing with. So even if we start out next year, I think, and do that dance at the beginning of the year, I could see us shutting down again if it becomes too serious. So it is the new normal. So your teachers have had this enormous learning curve. Are they providing instruction or are they just trying to keep kids from losing ground? What what are they doing at this point? So they are we are actually providing new content. Every every day a teacher is providing new content in math and then they're trying to continue with the reading process. But in math they're continuing, they're doing some online Zoom classes with our students. Um, and I've observed some of the classes. They're doing a, a beautiful job of being very succinct with their language and teaching the students. But you can imagine, I mean, some of it's just hysterical. Kindergartners in a Zoom meeting. I mean, some of them are in their beds with their covers up to here, you know, barely awake, waving to the teacher. You see the dad in the background just like rolling his eyes like this is ridiculous. Um, you know, we have had parents reach out to us saying, I can't get my kid to pay attention to the screen. And of course, we're all kind of laughing because we're like, yeah, we've had that problem too. <laughs> you know, this is our, our reality. But it, keeping the kids engaged is a challenge. And so we've been watching that. You know, we use the software and I don't want to, I'm not um, advocating for any software and another, but we're using a software called GoGuardian, which actually allows us to go in and see exactly what the screens are saying on each child's device, even when they are at home. So we're able to say, look, buddy, we can chat right on their screen and say, look, buddy, you haven't done any of your math today. <laughs> Let's turn off Minecraft and get you busy with some math. Then at the end of the week, we're giving reports to parents. But, you know, we deal with kids in poverty. And I will tell you, there are some children who are not engaged at all. And uh, when we use all of our methods to try to contact these parents, phone calls, uh, we are sending dojo messages to them. I am texting them. I am Facebook messaging them. And I am still not getting in contact. The, the next step would be me going and knocking on doors and saying, what is going on? Um, and in some cases, the child we know has the device and the child is using the device, but they're not engaging in learning. They're engaging in other things. So, so how do you know they have the device? So you, you handed out devices and Wi-Fi. How did that work? So that was kind of uh, dramatic and traumatic, I would say. So we came back from spring break and we had already been told, like, we're going to go on break for another week to figure out what we're doing. And then we came back and actually we ended up with a plan in place. And over the next two days, we were to deploy 300 devices. So we set up a triage in our cafeteria. We invited parents in. We got out the disinfectant and everything, and the parent would come in. We would hand their materials to them. We would hand their devices to them. We used our librarian to scan out, you know, barcodes to know exactly what device was with what child. Then within the next two weeks, our district had purchased 500 hotspots. It had taken some time to get those. And any parent and I applaud my district for this. They did a phenomenal job. Any parent that needed a hotspot could call a help desk and get a hotspot. 
no questions asked. And our district has over 7,000 students. They deployed computers to all of those students, plus all the staff have computers, and they are running a help desk for all of those devices. And they have done this in a matter of two to three weeks where we have transformed the learning of physical to online, and they have done a phenomenal job with what they've done. And so that has been really positive. All our children have access. The way I can tell that they have their computer is because of that software, that GoGuardian software. I can go online and see that the child has played YouTube games or, or Minecraft all day and isn't doing anything else, but he's online. You just demonstrated, you keep really close track of how your students are doing. And aside from knowing whether they're on the, you know, what computer they're on, are you able to kind of gauge whether they're learning some math or progressing in how they're reading? Or is that not possible now? It is possible. So we're in our third week. So we haven't been watching it really closely. Here we are in our third week and we're just starting to watch. So we're able to tell um, the percentage of students that are at least logging into some of our learning management systems. So that's just attendance, basically. Are they attending? So we get that data that way. And then we have some online learning tools that we're able to say, hey, are they they making some academic gains in reading and in math? Um, we have teachers that, uh, some tutors in our building, along with our special education staff, that are actually still doing personal meetings with students and checking to see where they are academically and what their specific needs are, and then doing specific Zoom meetings and having conversations. And as much as I have said about some families that are struggling, I will tell you, some of our families have risen beyond what I would expect. I mean, when you have a, a family with, you know, two out of three children that may have a disability, and those parents are actively engaging online learning with their kid every single day and really trying to help their child achieve. I mean, what more could you have asked for them to do? And they have a maybe a job also. So, I mean, some of our families, or the mom who works night, sleeps during the days, but between the hours of two and four are making her child do the work that needs to happen. Hats off, that's, that's outstanding. And um, we know we'll have hope. So next year, we've already, uh, when we become physically present again, we've already had conversations or starting the conversation about what are we going to do for these kids that we know we need to assess quickly get them into some remedial activities because we know like okay they're good learners they just have missed learning so now let's as push as hard as possible to get them back to where they need to be and then move them along their way um the kids you worry about the most are the kids that you're like man they struggle when they're here every day they're not engaged in learning right now and they're going to come back in a deficit that's going to be very hard to backfill so I know you are constantly looking for, you know, better ways to do things. I mean, that's why I see you at all these conferences all the time. <laughs> um, have you found anything helpful as you kind of think about this? Have you found anything helpful for you to learn more about what else to do? Is there anything out there? So I think one of the things that I've learned, so again, you know, I'm Zoom, I have Zoom meetings now with my family members probably once a week. And one of the things that uh, we're learning is there are some children that actually thrive in these environments, thrive. So there are some kids that really just give me a syllabus of what I need to get done. And I will 
spend my Mondays getting that done and you will get the work and it will be good work. And I probably don't need to be physically present in your class. However, at the same time, those same kids like to be physically present in your class because of the social. Okay. So right away you're thinking, okay, so how do you meet the needs of all of that? You know, do we need to provide an e-learning platform even with the kids that are going to be physically present in your class, but let them self-pace themselves through the learning? And and meanwhile, that, that would kind of free up the teacher then to be more focused on the kids who need more individualized presence attention. So that's been one conversation. The other conversation would be, you know, teachers could drive content more through e-learning. And what they haven't had to do during e-learning is classroom management. So one of the things that's, you know, painfully obvious is you, if you didn't deal with classroom management and the social dilemmas that happen in a class and you could just deliver content and knowledge, you actually don't need six hours a day because so much of your time is spent, you know, okay, class, let's all sit in our seats. Let's wait for two or three minutes for them to sit in their seats. Okay, class, get out your books. Uh, we're transitioning to lunch. We're transitioning. You spend an inordinate amount of time of just hurting. If you didn't have to deal with the hurting, your expertise could maybe be used differently. So just playing with some of those ideas on how we could change that up and maybe be more effective really in differentiating the learning for our, our, our students. So you're actually thinking that there's stuff to take from this experience to apply in the next phase, whatever that looks like, plan A, plan B, plan C. I think we would be wrong to believe that education is not going to be transformed forever based on what we're doing right now. And there's a lot of things. Teachers aren't going to say... So as much as I said, some teachers are super, super busy. There are other teachers are like, man, I really like this opportunity where I can really focus on content, focus on creating things. You know, they're not going to be willing to go back to a classroom where they're spending eight hours a day and, you know, four hours of it is just trying to get kids to sit their seats. They, there may be some that are like, I'm not doing this. There's a better way to do this. So I think you're going to see that. I think that in some ways this we're going to learn a lot, and I think it's going to be a good thing for education. We're going to transform what it could look like. I know you think a lot about equity and and making sure all kids are achieving at high levels. Actually, I I meant to read. You have this really interesting thing on your letter to the school um, on your website about um, the point of your school is to prepare kids for whatever they want to do. If it's be a manager at a pizza parlor, that's great. If it's, you know, I can't remember, go be a rocket scientist. Oh, the attorney general of the state of Kansas. You want them to be ready. (laughs) It, It absolutely is. Education is about giving children the opportunity of choice. That is what education provides. And, and there is no good or bad choice, but there are, whether you have lots of choices or narrow choices. And that's what education provides for a child. And I I also think that this situation has is making the gaps bigger. Um, and I it hurts my heart tremendously to know that. But where we have some families, and, and I'm going to use educators. Educators should be blessed 
We're using taxpayer money and we are being able to sit at home and we are being paid our salaries. And our biggest lifestyle change has been now we're taking care of kids and we're having to do a little work at home. But the reality is your survival isn't an issue. You're, you're surviving fine. But there are other families where, I mean, we had one mom come to us who's getting a lunch and she's like, we're, we're really struggling. I lost my job and the, the money hasn't come through yet for unemployment. And she says, we're struggling. And so we're trying to get her resources. But I mean, this is a family that it's not just about I'm inconvenienced because I got my kids at home all day. It's about, I'm not sure where my meal's coming from. And so, and they're struggling and we're not going to get out of this economic situation that fast either. So I just heard from somebody who has a degree and hasn't found a job yet. I mean, she's struggling and she has a degree. That same problem is going to affect all of our people who are at the service area of our economic sector. They are going to struggle finding those jobs. And so this economic impact is going to stretch, which only makes the gap bigger. And, and we as a country need to figure that one out. Yeah, I'm really struck by you saying your heart hurts about that. But um, well, Because these are children. So whenever, this is what we all have to remember. Whenever we say, I have a 98% poverty rate, or I deal with English language learners, I have a picture in my head of who that kid is. That is not a number. That is a person with a life, with a family. And we all need to be thinking about that. Those aren't just numbers. When they talk about someone died in the hospital alone, that is somebody's parents or grandparents. We, it's not a number. But yeah, it hurts my heart. One, one of the things I have learned from you, from Deb Gustafson, um, from uh, so many of the educators that I'm talking, who I'm with whom I am speaking on this podcast, is that data is people. Numbers are people. They're not numbers. Um, and I think what you just said is something I have learned from all of you. You're thinking that's a child, that's a family, that's a life. And and I one thing that really comes through here is your sense of responsibility to those lives, to those children, to those families. We absolutely, and that is what we try to instill in our teachers. You know, it is about relationships and relationships we always talk about, and it's kind of like the catchphrase, but it it's all about relationships. It's about the relationships we have with your family, about relationships you have with the children, it's about relationships you have with your community. It's all relational, and that's why we're here. That's why we are humans, and so it is about taking care of each other and what they need. So our teachers go above and beyond. You know, the expectation is if you need a hotspot, and, and we've had this, parent needs a hotspot, doesn't have a car, we're driving to the house to hand them the hotspot. Uh, the parent needs a lunch. Um, well, we found lunches. We have our community right now making um, meal kits. And, and I'm not sure if you're familiar with that, but basically what they're doing is they have created rice, beans, um, maybe a can of soup and something else in a bag. So you could take that home and basically dump it all together and you've got a meal to feed a family. And it usually has a protein, a carb, and, and you know, yeah, we'd like to add some frozen vegetables to it, but it will feed yours and sustain a family. And so we're doing that and we pass those out during our lunch program so that our families have a little bit extra if they need something in the evenings also. 
Well, thank you so much, Jenny. Um, uh, it, we may circle back at some point to hear how you're progressing. I hope that's okay. We at EdTrust hope you and your family and everyone in Junction City stay safe and healthy. I want to now introduce my colleague from EdTrust, Tanji Reed Marshall. Tanji is EdTrust Director of Practice. Tanji, what did you think about what Jenny just said about this will transform schools? They will not go back to what they were. Yeah. Do you think that's right? She's absolutely correct. Um, what I've been naming is because of what's happened in our nation and around the world, education stands on the precipice of possibility. We have the possibility to make critical transformative change in the way we educate children. We have for far too long decided that when Rip Van Winkle woke up, it'd be the same thing as when he left it. And we have now been pushed into a place where that can no longer be. And so I was really appreciative of Jenny naming that they're gonna be teachers who wanna continue distance learning because it gives them the possibility and the space to be more creative around content and, and delivery mechanisms. And then they're going to be teachers who really want to remain in what we have considered to be a more traditional way of content delivery and learning. And then they're going to be students. She was one of the only people to name that there are students for whom the space is thriving, right? I've spoken to students just like the ones Jenny named that say, you know what, this works for me. And I'm excited that she mentioned that, but the assumption that we keep naming is all kids are struggling. And I've talked to both principals as you, we've been talking that say the kids who used to be disengaged are engaged. And so this format has really opened up possibilities for engaging students um, to meet their needs. And she named it. How do we meet the multiplicity of needs without making assumptions about what this time and space means for kids? We got to let kids tell us what this time and space has meant for them. Um, and I'm glad she named that. Well, I mean, we know that school as it exists now doesn't work for all kids. So you know, how do we, how do we sort of think about that moving forward? How do we make school work for all kids, mm -hmm. whatever, and let the school piece of it um, change depending right. on how much they're learning. The That's learning right. is what's important. The learning is what's important. But, but right? yeah. you know, she also mm -hmm. talked about the social part. I mean, we don't can't want get around kids, it. We don't want kids just sitting in front of a computer all day, every day, that's not a good thing for kids. That's not a right. good thing for learning. It's not a good thing, period. On the other hand, like if what you really have to do is learn about the Civil War, maybe you read about the Civil War and you go and play soccer. <laughs> right. I, I mean, there, there, are ways or, there are ways that we have to be willing to interrogate what we've been doing. And we are forced into the interrogation space right now. We have no other choice, no other, we can't wait anymore. Um, and you're right, we don't want kids, you know, zombieing out in front of computers, but we have recognized, and Jenny named it, do we need six hours a day, right? If, if the bulk of what we're doing is sort of like 
herding cats, you know, in lines and, and, you know, stand in a single line to go to the water fountain, stand in a line to go to the bathroom and, you know, it's all pick up and move to lunch. How do we put some flexibility into that structure, right? How do we, even if we go back into buildings in whatever format we do, how do we bake in some flexibility within the structures that we have in place? Um, Reminded of a book um, named The Big Picture that came out a million years ago. And they talked about structures and flexibility within the school day where students were learning. They weren't necessarily, you know, in all English and then moving in a sort of linear fashion throughout their day. They had some really, really interesting structures um, in their building that met the needs of a wide range of students that gave, that could give us some ways to think about flexibility, give us some ways to think about instructional delivery patterns and methods, help us think about um, student voice in a critical way, help us really name the ways in which we can begin to consider students, really consider students at the heart, including the ones she named that we still have to have IEPs for. Students who are learning English and perfecting their English. Um, Students who maybe need to leave work early, right? I mean, leave school early to go to work. How do we meet those needs and really understand the, the relationship between life and schooling? And we have for too long kept them as disparate elements of kids' lives. And now we're blending them. So how do we blend them in a way that's effective and useful that speaks to learning and kids growing? Well, it seems to me we can't do that if we don't have a clear idea of what kids need to know and be able to do, to do. by the end of, of the 13 whatever. years, of That's whatever, right. however That's many right. years, right? Absolutely. They really need to be able to write a coherent essay about a topic, of, you know, about something <laughs> right. important. And argue right? points something. and read well and think, right? What does right. that mean? And what does that look like? You can get there a number of different ways. Abraham Lincoln did it pretty much on his own, right? Mm-hmm. No, very few kids are like Abraham Lincoln. Or Frederick Douglass, who, comes, Frederick out of, Douglass. Right, who comes out of these enslaved spaces or you know, highly oppressive places. How do we get kids to do those things? And you're right. You know, what does that mean to do it? Right. And, and we can't ask all kids to be, you know, geniuses like Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln. But what does it look like for them to take ownership and to really feel like this is important for them and not right. they're not doing it because, you know, mom said to do it. Or That's right. Jenny Black said to do it, but because right. it is important for important them. To them. That's right. To in learn. order to be the the manager of a pizza parlor or the attorney general of the state the of state Kansas. of Kansas. That's right. <laughs> Whichever. Whichever. (laughs) So that wraps up this episode of the Education Trust Podcast, Extraordinary Districts in Extraordinary Times. Our aim is to bring you the voices of effective educators grappling with all the questions of equity and excellence that face all educators today. I'm struck with the sheer practicality and can-do spirit of every one of the educators we've talked to and what, they, what that brings to this unprecedented situation. Every time I hear such smart, dedicated people talk about their work, it gives me hope for the field of education and for our nation. 
We've had more than 4,000 downloads of the Extraordinary Districts in Extraordinary Times podcast, so I'm hoping that others are finding these conversations helpful. If you think this is a valuable podcast, I hope you'll recommend it to your friends and networks. Please leave a review wherever you get this podcast. That will help steer people in our direction. If you want to be in touch, you can email districts at edtrust.org or tweet at edtrust or me at Karen Chenoweth, that's K-A-R-I-N-C-H-E-N-O-W-E-T-H or Tanji at Remarsh76. Mike Patillo records and edits this podcast through the magic of Zoom from Tonal Park. I want to thank all the people at EdTrust who are supporting this podcast. And thank you to the Wallace Foundation for providing financial support. Thanks, and see you next time.